This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. Today I'm excited to introduce to you, if you haven't heard about him already, the illustrious Tom Givens. Tom is one of the most well-respected firearms instructors in the country. You're going to hear more about why he is so in just a minute. Uh, Our friend Steve Moses is also a respected firearms instructor who uh, has been gracious enough to introduce Don West and I to a lot of his colleagues and friends, people that he's studied with for years. And uh, he's really excited to bring Tom to the podcast today. We're lucky to have him. We're going to talk about a lot of things in a two-parter episode because we had a nice long conversation with Tom today. We're going to get involved with the idea between the software skills and the hardware involved in a self-defense discipline. We're going to talk about a new term that I want you guys to know, preclusion. It's a great way to talk about avoidance and de-escalation without entertaining the negative connotations that go along with the idea of duty to retreat. We're going to talk a little bit about disparity of force. We're going to talk about assessing your attacker's ability, especially when you faced a potentially unarmed attacker who uh, may no doubt still pose a serious threat to you. And, uh, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot is that self-defense use of force is justified when you're facing an imminent threat of death or great bodily injury we often get a lot of questions about what actually constitutes great bodily injury tom's got a great answer for us so i'm gonna get right into it here is our conversation it's don west steve moses me and our new friend tom Givens. thanks for listening and by the way, if you want to find out more about Tom Givens, go check out his website, rangemaster.com. That's rangemaster.com. Listen, before we get going, I wanted to let our listeners, if they're not already familiar with you and your Rangemaster program, a little bit about your background. So I learned that uh, you're a, a veteran of law enforcement. You served as a... a as a patrolman and as an investigator? Yeah, I did some deputy sheriffing back in the 70s and 80s, a long time ago. And then you got eight years of service into the Army National Guard? Right. And you're, you're, a, you're a graduate of the FBI Police Firearms Instructor School, the NRA Law Enforcement Instructor School. And then I think most relevant to our conversation today, for 18 years, you had the facility, the range in Memphis, Tennessee, where you instructed, uh, what, 45,000 folks on, on how to shoot better. And, and a lot of those are folks who are applying for their concealed carry permit. Is that right? Right. And, uh, 96, 1996, the, uh, state of Tennessee changed the carry permit system, took it out of the hands of local sheriffs and put it under the state department of safety. And that moved the training from the sheriff's office to private trainers. So I saw that coming and built a training facility there. And about 10% of the population in Memphis got a carry permit over the next 15, 18 years. And we trained a pretty good percentage of them. And then uh, 
a few years ago, you shut down the bricks and mortar facility and you took the show on your road. So you, so you and your wife now get to travel around the country and most weekends you're teaching uh, armed defenders on how to be more responsible gun owners and better shots. I think you're the only person I've ever seen who, who self-described as itinerant, Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's a term I've been using for years. I started teaching on a part-time basis in 1975 and did just a handful of road classes a year uh, as my schedule work schedule would allow. When we opened the range in Memphis in uh, 1996, that kept me tied down a lot. So I, I didn't teach a lot on the road then either eight or nine classes a year. But when we closed it in uh, 2014 and went on the road full-time, so uh, been a full-time trainer since 1996, but on the road full-time since 2014. So now we do about 35 classes a year, literally all over the country. Yeah, that's fascinating. And one thing that we're going to talk a lot about today is during the time that you had the facility in Memphis, like you said, you trained about 45,000 folks. But if any one of those concealed carriers were involved in a use of force incident, you got a notification of that. Is that right? Not, not all of them. Uh, you know, some people are really reluctant to talk about sort of thing. Uh, they don't want people at work or their church or whatever to find out. So they try to keep it low profile, but a uh, fair number came back and reported into the school. I had a few reported to me through law enforcement channels through people I know. Uh, they call me up and say, hey, yes, so-and-so one of yours and I'd look up the records. See, yeah, he is. And then they tell me what it's involved in. So for the, 18 year period we had the range there in Memphis, we averaged about four, five people a year involved in something uh, involving self-defense. And so, so what I saw is that you, as of the, when you wrote your book, you had 65 shootings that you heard about and your stats are the 62 of those were wins, zero losses and, and three forfeits. And one of the big things I learned from reading what you have written Tell me if I'm on on track here. Is that is that you win every gunfight that and every gunfight that you can avoid, but you lose every gunfight that you don't show up to with a gun. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Current records: sixty-eight, zero, and three. Yeah. The only the only people that I know of, and there may have been some I don't know of, but the only ones I know of that uh, went through some training with us and were subsequently murdered were those three that were killed in separate street robberies. And uh, they were the three that didn't have a gun. Uh, the last one's a perfect example. Uh, guy was a uh, house flipper. He would buy a home, rehab it, sell it at a profit. So he had subcontractors work for him. Uh, he went to a uh, job site to meet a couple of subcontractors that, uh, that said to himself that morning, I'm just going to meet a couple of contractors in broad daylight. No need to wear a gun. While he was standing there in the driveway talking to him, three young thugs drove by and saw him standing there, got out, robbed him in the driveway. Uh, eyewitnesses said the guy had handed over his watch, his wallet, and his cell phone and was standing there with hands in the air when the guy executed him. So that's a typical when you don't wear your gun. If you, if you don't bring your gun with you, I don't care how many you own, I don't care how skillful you are with them. If you don't have it with you, it's not going to do you much good. Problem is, this guy thought he could predict what day he was going to need his gun, what day he wasn't. And that, that's not something you can predict very well. You talk about, it, in your book, you distinguish between software skills and hardware skills. Mm -hmm. 
right? A lot of folks tend to focus on the hardware, right? Their equipment. And one thing, you know, our podcast, Don and I started this a long time ago and brought Steve in to round out our conversations. We're looking at a lot of people come to the your range. A lot of people decide to be concealed carriers because they're concerned about winning the fight that you talk about. If they're uh, encountering a violent criminal, they want to survive that. We're focused on helping those folks survive the next fight, right, Don? You know, the, the legal fight that comes afterwards. And we don't want good, well-intentioned people to make any mistakes that are going to cause them uh, an otherwise justifiable self-defense shooting to, to end up in a... We don't want it to end up in legal charges to begin with, and we don't want it to end up in uh, a conviction, for sure. Yeah, that's exactly right, Sean. And, of course, we want everyone to survive the first fight, which requires the knowledge and skill that's necessary to safely and responsibly be prepared to use the gun if you if you have to. But then, of course, you cannot control what happens next. You can do some things that put you in a better position, I think, to manage the aftermath of a shooting. And I appreciate the comments that uh, that you made in your book, Tom, about that. But nonetheless, you can't control perfectly whether you get arrested or prosecuted and uh, finally whether you actually face very serious charges in trial. But we think with some training, some education, some reflection as you engage in this, the awesome responsibility of carrying a a concealed firearm, that you can prepare yourself better uh, for what may come. And I think we believe that's absolutely an important part of the overall training process. And uh, I'm intrigued by your comments on on that, Tom. I, I know that when you are teaching licensing type classes, there has to be a self-defense component to it from a legal perspective. On the other hand, I sort of wonder, is there some way for you to calculate what is the least amount of training necessary to become a responsible concealed carrier? That's kind of flipping it on its head, but... You know, that that would be a really hard thing to quantify. It depends on how much time somebody has spent uh, reading, researching, uh, there's there's an awful, awful lot of good information available out there in various books and other forms and, and on the internet, although, as you're aware, there's an awful lot of bullshit on the internet as well, but there's good information there if you're careful about your sources. And it depends on their athletic ability. Some people can learn physical skills a lot quicker and more easily than others. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to put a, a finger on that. If you've got somebody who's actually uh, intelligent, they're committed to learning about it. They, they take the time to read, do some research. They, they do the things you tell them to do in class as far as drive work after, afterward and whatnot. Uh, it's, this, this is not as complex as a lot of people try to make it out to be, especially the physical side of it. But it does require some effort. Uh, it's a lot easier to learn if you're properly guided. Can you teach yourself to play piano? Yeah, probably. Is that the best way to do it? No. Can you teach yourself to use a piano? Yeah. But is that the best way to do it? No. So, uh, but sort of put a, a number on that. You know, various states mandate eight hours or 12 hours or 14 hours of training, but they, they frankly just pull those numbers out of the air. I, I got the sense um, that the training class that you get, the amount of training that you get to make yourself eligible for a concealed carry permit 
isn't the end of the process. It's just the absolute very beginning, an introduction to some of the things that you really need to work on probably for the rest of your life. The carry permit's kind of like a learner's permit for, for drivers. It gives them the opportunity to drive a little bit and start learning how to drive. And the same thing with the carry permit. It really doesn't signify much at all. Uh, I mean, hell, half the states now don't even require one to carry. So uh, it's it's an individual thing. You know, I, I ask in every class, uh, I ask people uh, to think, to introspect a little bit about that ID card the state issued them. Whether it's a law enforcement commission or a carry permit, it makes no difference whatsoever. It's a little plastic card. When they handed that person that card, what they actually handed them was the power of life and death over everybody they come in contact with as they go through their daily routine. They can pick people out and make them die on the spot. No appeal, no recourse, no way to fix it if they're wrong. They're dead. Stay that way. Um, if you'll think about it, the president of the United States can't do that. The Queen of England can't do that. The Pope can't do that. But your typical Joe Blow with a carry permit can do that. That's one of the really odd dichotomies in this business. And um, I asked them, with that kind of power, goes what? And they always say responsibility. And I correct them. Now, it's not the right word. The word is accountability. You can be 100% responsible not be held accountable. But you're going to be held accountable both civilly and criminal. So you better know what the hell you're doing. Um, if you'll think about it, if, if you look into mythology at all, you can look at from opposite ends of the world, from North mythology to ancient Egyptian, to everybody in between, Roman, Greek, and everybody in between. One of the attributes of the gods was the ability to point their fist at an enemy and smite them at a distance, which is exactly what a concealed carrier can do. So essentially, somebody carrying a pistol has the power of the ancient gods. And uh, with that goes the responsibility to train, to learn what you're doing, learn what the law is, become proficient with the firearm, and be sane and sober about what you do and don't do with it. I, I find most of the problems that people get into, and, not, and there are exceptions, obviously, and you've seen some, but most of the time people get into it because of a complete and utter lack of knowledge about what is and is not legal, and interject themselves into situations they shouldn't even be in in the first place, and then need you to extricate them. You'd wrote in your book, Tom, that the people who take the time to get their permit so that they can carry their weapon legally and you take the time to get the training and invest any time at all into uh, envisioning what a self-defense scenario would be or getting in the right mindset, those folks very rarely have shootings that result in a lot of legal scrutiny. You quoted one state that over the course of three years, only eight concealed carriers were involved in shootings, and all of them were exonerated. Yeah. If you use the gun for what it's actually for, you'll have a lot less problems. Uh, in, in the experience of my students, the vast majority of them that have been involved in some sort of gunplay has been the result of some form of armed robbery. Uh, if you think about it, somebody robbing you on the parking lot somebody sticking up your little business, somebody carjacking you at gunpoint, somebody kicking your door down at three in the morning with a gun in hand. Those are all just variations of armed robbery. Mm -hmm. um, armed robbery seems to be the single most likely thing. You know, there are exceptions. There are targeted individuals. Like I had one, one student whose uh, wife talked the daughter into getting a protective order against her abusive boyfriend. Boyfriend figured that out, came to mom's house. Dad wound up having to shoot him. Uh, that's a targeted crime, but those are actually somewhat rare among, or at least among ours. Uh, most of ours have been the result of some form of armed robbery, as I just said. And uh, 
our route was pretty clear cut. I mean, it's, uh, it's it's not hard for the cops, the prosecutor, or anybody else to figure out who the bad guy is when somebody produces a gun, threatens your life, and you shoot them. Yeah, um, pretty easy to see who's who's who there. You know, when when Don and I Don and I met on a working on a self defense case, and my introduction to the whole conversation on self defense beyond just having a gun, and but, but thinking about it seriously was from the legal perspective. So Don and I worked on a case. We had challenges. We've worked on a couple of cases since, and we've talked about many, many cases. And the conclusion that we've come up with, um, and Don, tell me if I'm off base here, is that we see a lot of these cases could have been completely avoided, even the justifiable ones, if the armed defender had made just a couple of different decisions in the moments leading up to the shooting before it was too late and they had to make that life or death decision. Absolutely. You talk a lot about uh, de-escalation in a word that I'm going to integrate into my vocabulary. You, you said that like 95% of writing about uh, self-defense is plagiarism, Tom. Yeah. I'm going to plagiarize you uh, now with your word preclusion. And, and I'm delighted that, that once uh, uh, Steve started working with us on this podcast and brought his training experience and his technical experience to us, plus... The, the incredible network of uh, experienced trainers like Etom that he's brought to the table. Steve, wouldn't you find that the conclusions that Don and I kind of reached from a legal standpoint, how to protect the defender after the shooting in the legal system, are a lot of the same good advice that you've been given and that other trainers have been giving to people for years about how to avoid and, and properly use a firearm in a self-defense situation? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think a big part of self-defense, you know, kind of starts with that whole commitment to, you know, first avoidance and then deterrence and then disengagement or de-escalation. And then that, and only if there's just no other options and you cannot escape that situation or you just have to protect someone else, then uh, that's when you defend yourself. And if you defend yourself, you need to do it, uh, properly and in such a manner that hopefully you will not be charged after the incident. And if you are that, you know, people like Don West and CCW safe and others uh, can, you know, take care of you at the trial and you don't spend the rest of your life in prison. Don, did you experience that as well? Like once we started talking more with the, the hands-on guys, the tactical folks uh, that were you surprised that, their advice and our advice ended up being so well aligned. Yes, I, I, I hadn't thought it through before like that. And our conversations prompted us to include people, you know, like Steve on our podcast. And Tom, I've known of you for a long time. It's certainly a pleasure to talk with you in, in person today. And what impressed me for... Uh, example of the sorts of things that we're talking about right now is your discussion in your book about the levels of alertness, the color codes uh, that Jeff Cooper had developed over the years. And so much of avoidance or this notion of preclusion seems to be um, if you're just smart enough and aware enough of what's going on around you, you'll avoid a lot of trouble and not find yourself in a position where someone has actually pointed that gun to your face. Yeah, I, 
I give people a double your money back guarantee. You're going to survive every single violent confrontation you don't get in. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think uh, I, every now and then I, I catch a lot of grief from uh, an attorney for the use of the terms like preclusion. They say there's nothing in, in Florida, for instance, there's nothing in Florida law about that. Uh, that that's not the point. The point is trying to not have Florida law applied to me um, in, in, in any way. Um, same way with the levels of, of force. You know, I, I, I teach kind of an escalating series of uh, force options. And uh, I've taken the task about that. I said, no, in, in Florida, there's not deadly law. And, uh, there's not deadly force and deadly force. And that's all that's in the law. That may well be. But that oversimplistic approach may, may create problems uh, down the road. So I, I think it's a real a real error for firearms trainers to teach people how to mechanically operate the gun and not teach them when, when to and when not to. And so we, we get fairly deeply into that. I want to nerd out from a legal perspective here for a minute, Tom, because you talked about preclusion, which is you get pushback sometimes. Whenever we use the word retreat in any context, that we're going to hear about it from somebody that, you know, why do I have to run away from a fight? And and you, you talk in your book specifically about how retreat doesn't mean, you know, to run away. Like when you're confronted with that imminent deadly threat, you don't have to try to run away from it. At that point, it's it's too late. Uh, but preclude, precluding an event means that you try to avoid it when you have the opportunity to do so. And you say Florida law doesn't say preclude. You're right. Florida is a specifically a stand-your-ground state. There's other states that have the duty to retreat built into the law it actually says duty to retreat there's um a lot of common law interpretation of self-defense in states that hadn't defined it there's an implied duty to retreat but i i don you and i were talking about this the other day offline i think there's a real i think there's two sides of the same coin right duty to retreat just really implies that if you have the opportunity to avoid the deadly confrontation that you were going to take it. And then once it's that imminent threat of somebody who means to do you harm and can do it, uh, then, you know, it's completely justified. On the other hand, waiving that duty to retreat, uh, the nuts and bolts of the language, you're still not justified in using deadly force until there's that imminent threat of the deadly force, which uh, imminent, Don, you've always said means right now. <laughs> Once yes. it's imminent, mm-hmm. there really is no chance to retreat, even if you could. Now, the the stand your ground gives us legally. Uh, Don, would you say that that like if you have a duty to retreat in a law, it's almost as if the burden's been shifted on the armed defender that now you have to sort of prove that you didn't have the opportunity to retreat or that you did try. Well, it, 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 it was like a yeah, there, there, there's another element, in a sense, in the trial. And uh, the jury could decide that you, in fact, faced an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death, that you were justified in using deadly force. And if that's where the inquiry ended, you would be acquitted right then based on that. However, where there is a legal duty to retreat, <clears throat> excuse me, if the jury also concludes whether it's right or wrong based upon insufficient evidence or a gut feeling, however it is they decide that you did have an opportunity to retreat but chose not to and instead used deadly force, 
uh, you're guilty. Uh, that's the one thing the prosecutor has just proven beyond a reasonable doubt in their mind that it wasn't self-defense under the state law, and they find you guilty. They may hate doing it. They may think you were right in many ways, but you didn't act in lawful self-defense in that jurisdiction. Uh, as you kind of put those two together in my mind, whether there's a legal duty to retreat or the right to stand your ground with no legal duty to retreat, it's not so much a legal issue, I think, in application, though, as it is a, a tact. Well, it's a legal issue, not a tactical one. I, I think, I'm interested to know, Tom, and I think, Steve, you agree as well, that if there is an opportunity to retreat, meaning uh, avoid, not run away because you're scared as much as avoid the confrontation, that it makes good sense to use that regardless of whether you have a legal obligation to do so. That, that's the thing. And uh, even in states that have a duty to retreat statute, in the statute, one of the things that so many people miss is it says, if you can retreat in safety, you know, you're not required to back away from somebody that's shooting at you. Uh, you're, you're required to retreat if you can do so safely. And the other thing, as you said, retreat doesn't necessarily mean running away. It means breaking contact and disengaging from what is becoming a dangerous situation. You know, the, the example I give people all the time, if you're sitting in your car at a stop sign, motor's running, it's in gear, you look over, you see a guy step off the curb and reach for a pistol under his sweatshirt. The correct answer is not how do I engage from inside the car. The correct answer is stop the skinny pedal on the right and get the hell out of there. Uh, that's a obvious option that you have to avoid the danger rather than use the gun. When you have an obvious option that would work, then that's what the law requires you to use. Uh, the, the problem is when people have that obvious option and don't take it, and then they've got a legal problem. Well, and even I'll contend in stand your ground states like Florida, the, the prosecutor might not be allowed to make the case that by refusing to avoid the confrontation that you've scuttled your self-defense choice. But I think the jury, if they decide that your refusal to take an obvious pathway out of the confrontation, they will speak against your reasonableness in your decision to use deadly force. You're turning it into mutual combat rather than self-defense. And so we're not going to use the, the word duty to retreat, but am I right in reading what you've done, Tom, that you would... You're encouraging armed defenders to take every opportunity that they can to safely avoid, de-escalate, or preclude a gunfight that they should do it. Absolutely. We, we, we use the term reluctant willingness. We, we're willing to use that gun, but we're very reluctant to do so. It's, it's got to be a last resort. But then, then I'm right that once that threshold's crossed and it's go time, you need to be fully committed to Absolutely. your actions. Leave the gun alone unless somebody's life's in, in extreme immediate danger. And if, if that's the case, get to work. If not, do something else. So I want to talk to you about a couple of places where we see in the cases that we've studied and and, and uh, actual folks who called and talked to Don, where people get in trouble is here's one big situation where good people get in trouble because there's a lot of gray area. And that's when an armed defender encounters an attacker who is perhaps not armed with a firearm or not obviously armed with a firearm, uh, 
or not armed with anything that's obviously a, a deadly weapon. We know, you know, you write very well that a screwdriver is a very popular weapon, but it's not a weapon unless it's used that way, right? And so negotiating um, the, those threat levels that, that Don was quoting about moving up that ladder when you're face-to-face with somebody that you believe means you harm, but they don't have a firearm, at least one that's not apparent, what kind of conversations do you have with your clients and students about negotiating that? Well, what we try to get people to understand, we live in a gizmo-oriented culture, so we always focus on the thing. You know, people ask me, well, if he has this, if he has that, if he has that. I don't care what he has. What we're concerned with is the degree of damage. Uh, if someone sticks a screwdriver between two of your ribs and wiggles it around, you're dead. Is a screwdriver a weapon? No, a screwdriver is a hand tool unless somebody tries to stick it in your chest. If somebody hits you in the head with a ball-peen hammer and gives you a depressed skull fracture, you'll be dead. It's not a weapon per se. It's it's a ball-peen hammer. It's made of peen metal. But if they try to hit you in the skull with it, that's a deadly act. So I really wish people would quit focusing on the gizmo. Don't really care how somebody kills you. You'll be the same dead. There's no degrees of death. So get away from, does he have this? Does he have that? Does he have something else? What can this guy do to me under these circumstances? You know, if a guy's got a screwdriver, but he can't get to you physically with it, then that's that's a different equation. The guy's got a gun, but he's on the other side of the barbed wire fence. He, you're still in danger because he can airmail the violence to you. He doesn't have to hand deliver it. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what can this guy do to me from where he is, not what does he have particularly. I mean, I arrested a guy one time for beating another man to death with a two by four. It's a pretty darn low tech weapon, but dude's dead. Uh, you know, my clue would say, well, here's a guy covered with blood from head to toe. Maybe I ought to talk to him. The people that get in big trouble are, are the folks. We just got the, the Curtis Reeves case. Did, did you watch that uh, or see anything about that in Chapel Hill, the the retired SWAT guy? And um, he was acquitted. And I think Don, Steve, and I are actually a little surprised we haven't talked in depth about this yet, but we traded some texts that he he was acquitted. And there's a there's a man who used firearm against someone who didn't have a firearm. But you've written in your book that uh, a pair of fists can be a deadly weapon. You know what? It, I'm looking for more insight into how how we navigate those circumstances. And I'm not saying his acquittal was right or wrong. I'm just saying that the guy was a little over half his age. Uh, had a reach advantage on him, was in much better physical condition. Uh, those are all things you have to factor in. Uh, I'm frankly a little surprised that he was quitted uh, completely. I, I, I figured on manslaughter charge. But um, for one thing, and you really can't count on this, but juries are kind of fed up with young, aggressive assholes pushing old people around. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a sympathy vote from the jury more than more than following the law in that particular case. But um, you know, there, there are a lot of a lot of misrepresentations in the press about that. They, they say he shot the guy because he threw popcorn. No, that's that's not why. Right. That's the that's the pop culture version of that. Well, that that, that brings up an interesting thing. We're, we're talking about disparity of force. I bet you get a lot of questions about that with the folks that you train, because what you're what you're suggesting there is that uh, you have an old guy who looks like he's about to get into a fist fight with a, a young fit guy who seems pretty keen to go and you know don that that goes into the legal calculus doesn't it It, it, when when there's 
physically one person's not able to they can't they can't match them through the the continuum of force right they can't a, a fist fight's not going to be an option for them oh, yeah there's clearly a jury instruction in florida specifically to that where if the alleged victim of the shooting is unarmed uh, that in no way means that the defender couldn't lawfully use deadly force against them. There's no requirement that the other person have a deadly weapon of any sort, including an object like the screwdriver that could be used as a deadly weapon. The, the, the question is really whether they posed that threat of serious bodily injury or death. And there's a specific instruction that talks about ability, size, capacity, age, infirmity, those kinds of things that the jury is very well should be focused on by the lawyers. That's the job of the lawyers, I think, to be sure that the jury understands what that legal standard is, that it doesn't require the defender to be hurt first. It doesn't require the other person to have a so-called deadly weapon. It's just that analysis, uh, regardless if there's a, a, a disparate uh, ability and, and force, there's while there has to be a proportionality of force, you can't meet non-deadly force with deadly force, even an unarmed attacker, as Tom well pointed out, is more than capable <clears throat> of using deadly force with just um, hands and feet and other things that might be readily available. The cell phone could have entered into that. I mean, that's a hard object that, if used aggressively and forcefully, can cause serious injury, of course. So... Yeah, that's a very important consideration and in no way precludes a lawful finding of, um, of the self-defense just because the other person doesn't have a, a specific deadly weapon. It goes back to what I said a little while ago about getting away from what does he have and think in terms of what can he do. Um, mm -hmm. What is the degree of damage at, at, at stake here, not what specific item does this guy have, whether it's a cell phone or a sap, it's still something to use as an impact weapon. Uh, and you're going to find this is not a find one thing and check the box and say, okay, I've got a disparity of force defense. Uh, so it's a number of things. If you got an, uh, a much older gentleman in this case, but a much stronger, much younger offender, uh, you have one guy against three people, uh, three people get him down on the ground, start kicking and stomping on him. What's predictable outcome? What's serious injury or death? Uh, small female, big male. Uh, males are going to have an upper body strength issue and a reach advantage over a typical female. Um, there, all of these things go into, you know, somebody in a wheelchair fighting against a couple mm -hmm. of body people. All, it's not a one thing. It's one of the circumstances here that they show that this person was in real risk of death or serious bodily injury, regardless of the gizmo or lack of gizmo. You know, more people, more people are murdered with boots every year than with rifles every year. A couple of toe kicks to the side of the head and you're dead. Uh, so that, that's a pretty common issue. So. Well, there's the intent factor that you talk about there. Well, while we're talking about this, Tom, a lot of what you're describing, the laws say that you can defend yourself with deadly force to prevent death, but also great bodily harm. And I think a lot of folks who get into trouble in these situations where maybe they're not facing a firearm from the attacker is what that definition of great bodily harm is. You know, it's not... Uh, it's not necessarily a, a punch to the face. 
there's a lot of nuance with this. So how do you navigate that with your clients and your students on, on how to describe what great bodily harm is? Yeah, we, we, we are not talking about broken fingernails, bloody noses, split lips, black eyes. We're not talking about that sort of, that's bodily injury, not serious bodily injury. Serious bodily injury in, in our view is uh, are things like uh, protracted unconsciousness. What, what's the first step in dying? Protracted unconsciousness. Large, painful, bleeding wounds. Uh, I know a guy that uh, a biker stuck a buck knife in right above belt level on one side and pulled it hard up to the other side and literally eviscerated him, dropped everything in his lower torso out onto a parking lot. But he survived. But that's a, he, that's a serious injury. He was in the hospital for quite a while. After he was a little sick for a while, as we as we say. Man. And mm. the same way he died. But that's still a deadly force. Uh, if something puts out an eye, tears off an arm, you're not going to die from that. Uh, you know, modern trauma care is such that damn near nobody dies if somebody tries to murder. The murders in this country are the very tip of the iceberg. In the, we, we left Memphis in 2014, so I, I haven't bothered to check since then, but I, I've got figures for 2013. There are 20 hospitals in the Memphis metropolitan area, but one of them is a class one trauma center. It's one of the best in the country because they get a lot of practice. Uh, they treated in 2013, they treated 3,100 people for gunshots, 3,100, uh, less than hundred of them that were presented alive died from those injuries. Uh, they saved the rest of them. Uh, there were 154 actual murders that year in Memphis, but there were over 9,000 aggravated assaults, uh, 50, 60 years ago. And a very large number of those would have been fatalities, but with modern trauma care, they're not. So the fact that something doesn't kill you doesn't mean somebody wasn't trying to kill you. It means modern trauma care intervened and you survived, which you might be screwed up for life as a result of that. Uh, I know one guy who went from being a athletic, active, well-involved father to being somebody who's pretty much stuck on the couch because a bullet through his heart, uh, he survived, but his cardiac capacity is just nothing now. I know another young woman who was fully able until she was shot with a shotgun. Now she's blind in both eyes and lost the use of her right arm. She's right-handed. And uh, so now she's going to go through the rest of her life blind and with only her non-dominant arm to function with. And neither of them died. But those are both deadly force. So those are serious bodily injuries. There's another instance where we see uh, good people get into trouble in a self-defense scenario, and that's the application of force after there's been a break in contact or after the attacker has retreated or de-escalated or removed the imminent threat. Talk to me a little bit about that in your experience. Well, that, that, that's retaliation or, or revenge. That's, that's not defense. Now, the, the law allows you to stop aggressive behavior against you. When the aggressive behavior is stopped, we'll tell you defending against you. Oh, it's no longer self-defense at that point. Uh, have you guys interviewed Claude Werner? We have. Well, you know, Claude does a lot of work on what he calls negative outcomes. Uh, it comes through uh, news reports every day and every day finds some. And uh, his most common negative outcomes are people that uh, hear somebody outside rummaging through their car in the driveway in the middle of the night and go outside. The thief jumps out of the car and runs off and the idiot throws a shot at him. And then they're just baffled when the police show up and arrest them, charge them with aggravated assault. Uh, they're just baffled, but it's my stuff. Yeah, but it's stuff. You can shoot people over stuff. Uh, and 
guy wasn't even stealing your stuff anymore. He was running away. So that that kind of knee-jerk reaction with a gun is 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 what gets an awful, awful lot of people into trouble. Um, if you have something in your car worth somebody's life, take it out of the damn car, put it in the house. Now, if there's nothing in your car worth somebody's life, where are you going to have a gun to confront a guy? Now, when when you go out with a gun, you've already you've already escalated the situation uh, to almost the inevitability of using force. Uh, it's, you know, stay in the house, call police. Yeah, that negative outcomes, that's one of the attributed plagiarism I use all the time. I love that term because that's that's what we're trying to to avoid both from a, a physical standpoint and from a legal standpoint. But how, how, so how do you handle folks? Because I think one of the things that leads people into trouble, and this is a mindset thing, this is one of those software things, is you know we did one case of uh, the guy up in Minnesota uh, who allowed – two teenagers to break into his house and he used that as an opportunity to essentially execute them in his basement right that's the extreme version of it uh but we've seen other cases where there was just one shot fired out of eight after the person had fallen to the ground and the first seven might have been justified but they get convicted for that eighth shot right or this idea that you've got some violent someone just robbed you and now it's over and they're running away and you finally get your gun out or you're chasing after the burglar outside the front door of your house and so now now you're in a position to shoot him in the back or to chase him out into the street and have a fight out there this is where people get into to trouble it's understandable that when that adrenaline starts pumping right and it's hard it's maybe it might be hard to take that fear separate it from the anger and know when that moment stops. But uh, I think, I think prior, proper prior training can help a lot with that. The way have to remold the way people think about, about these issues. And that's, that's a training issue. Um, yeah. I, one, one of the things we, we use is the term necessity, uh, the doctrine of necessity. Was it necessary to shoot this guy? I, I tell people all the time, if you can honestly say to yourself, honestly, if I don't shoot this clown right now, I'm going to be killed or crippled. Then you go right ahead and shoot this guy. But if you can't honestly say that, then leave your gun alone. Steve, you've had the good fortune to study with Tom before, haven't you? Oh, I've probably taken somewhere between 50 and 20 classes from him, including I took a class last year, Master Farms instructor class. And uh, I'm actually going to take a revolver class from him uh next year and i wouldn't be surprised if i don't end up taking another class from him in 2022 just i just can't stay away from tom well i I consider you steve like a trainer's trainer at this point right you train people who train other people and you're just such a uh long-term student of this one thing i love about you is that no matter how much you know you still think of yourself as a student you're always learning and so tell me some of the things that you've learned or, or had reinforced or, or really admired about how Tom approaches firearms instruction? Well, I first uh, took a class from Tom, I believe it was in 1999. And uh, since then, I've done my best to take a class from him literally every year or at least attend a block of instruction that he teaches at the, uh, the, at the tackle conference, which he is, uh, you know, range master there that's actually his conference and the other the thing that really helps me out is basically i get to experience 
a lot of uh, scenarios, situations, and benefit from what I refer to as indirect experience. That's experience that he has gleaned over the years so that when I approach a situation, now, even though I may have never physically been involved in something like that, I already have kind of an idea of uh, what the scenario might look like and what might be the appropriate action. And, you know, I made reference earlier to, you know, uh, I think it's in the best interest of concealed carers to, you know, uh, avoid conflict, uh, comport themselves in such a matter that they're not chosen as victims. Uh, if indeed they think perhaps they might have been targeted to disengage immediately, uh, if not de-escalate and then last defend, but defend very appropriately using all, and I'll just go ahead and use this term that, you know, some people may frown on it, but surprise speed and violence of action and then know when to turn that off. I think that's critical. And that is something that Tom teaches better than almost any other instructor that I've taken courses from. And when I say that, that's with due respect to a lot of really outstanding instructors. Uh, but Tom has just codified that in such a way that uh, it just, he provided me with so much material at the very get go. And the other thing about Tom is Tom is not stuck in the past. He is constantly updating his program. He, you know, makes changes. He makes revisions based upon new knowledge and experiences that he has. And so it's why, you know, so many of my articles that I've written, I've made uh, reference to Tom Gibbons or what Tom Gibbons has said, what Tom Gibbons teaches. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I was uh, throwing Tom's name out as I thought is just, you know, a perfect uh, guest for an upcoming podcast. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. I first met Steve 20 years ago, more than that, actually. Uh, for several years, I was on the staff of SWAT magazine for several years. My job, every issue was to go to a different school and write them up for the magazine. That's a dream job for a trainer because I got to travel around and steal, um, audit how other schools do things. And I went and observed Steve and his partners teach a class and uh, was impressed with him and wrote him up for the magazine. And that's started our collaboration over two decades ago. And uh, as you said, Steve's a consummate professional. He still takes training uh, at this level, which a lot of people stop training. They reach a certain level and say, I know everything. Uh, none of us have all the pieces of the puzzle. It's important to keep collecting as we go along. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Join us next time where we're going to have part two of our conversation with Tom Gibbons. We're going to talk about defensive display, warning shots. We're going to get a little bit more into the hardware aspects of self-defense and talk about the value of visualization. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. Stronger than dirt.